0: Support for the Explominate podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who's the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 7 million men worldwide who've trusted Manscaped with their exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code Explominate at manscaped.com. And if my math is correct, that's about 14 million balls. Guys, you know you've made it big when Manscaped is actually willing to support your podcast like this. And honestly, I wasn't going to agree to this until I tried the products out and made sure that they were something that I felt comfortable advertising like this. But now that I've tried it, I cannot tell you how amazing these products are. They are extremely high quality. And after using them, I can attest to the fact that they are gentle on all of your body. I was also given their beard trimmer, and I can't tell you how nice my beard looks now. I am never going back to another product. And I'm not just saying that because these guys are supporting Explornate like this. They are just amazing products. I'm really impressed. And probably the best part is that these all are waterproof, which means you can do all this in the shower and you don't leave a big mess. I love it. So, Forex fans, get 20% off and free shipping with the code Explornate at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code Explominate. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same Jersey as you to be your best. Every time you step on the field, that's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. And now for an explominate interview. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome to the Explore Manic podcast. This week, I've got my co-host, Sean. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good, matey. How are you? I know you've just woken up.
2: Yeah, not bad. Yeah, it's a bit early, but happy to be here all the same.
1: And we've also got a special guest this week, Edmund, who is a YouTuber who specializes in playing strategy games on like the hardest settings, and has got a background in game design, and he's also the Slytherin Community Manager. We're not really here to talk about that, but uh, we are going to pick Edmund's brains because he is like the quintessential... Min max gamer, I think, and uh, he does it in a way that he's a, that is so presentable to other people.
3: <laughs> well, thank you for the for the fabulous introduction, highly embellished, and definitely <laughs> sets the bar way higher than I would have set it. Well, I mean, if you look at my YouTube channel, I have a banner at the top there of a of a smiling faced boy in amongst an Amiga five hundred and, and a Super NES. Well, that is actually me when I was like five years old. So I've been at computer games for a very long time, and I don't know, it's just, it's just something that I have really enjoyed my whole life, uh, even long before computer games were really a thing to, to other people. So here I am now on YouTube, playing games for a living, and, and yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lifelong thing. So here we are.
1: That's fantastic because we always ask our guests, like you know, what is your background in gaming? When did you start? And it sounds like you started really, really early. Maybe you can tell us about some of the, you know, some of the fond memories you've got of gaming from when you were young.
3: This is a little bit of a sad story, so I don't, I don't, but I don't want to make bring bring the tone down after such an amazing introduction. But how it actually started was um, so my father actually died when I was very young, about one years one years old, and I received a small inheritance of, I think, £500, something along those lines. And my mother decided that when I was a bit older, she would get me something. And the thing that she got me, or well, the thing... So we walked into a uh, a Toys R Us, like a famous toy store brand in the UK and in Jersey. Uh, I don't think they exist anymore, but uh, that that is where I was. And I could have anything in the store. And the thing in the store that I got was... Answers on a postcard from my two lovely hosts...
1: Was it the Amiga?
3: It was not the Amiga.
1: Okay, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Let me you
3: try. Think be, what it a movie. not many choices for things that were that were in a toy store at that okay. time. Okay, so you got toys or a game of some kind? It was a uh, it was a Game Boy. A Game Boy. It was a
1: Game Boy. The original.
0: The original. Of course,
1: it was
3: the, the, it was the original. <laughs> it was like 20, 20, five, 30 years ago. Of course, it was. And five games. Tetris, Bugs Bunny, a Donald Duck game, and two other games I don't remember. Probably because they weren't very good. That is that is part of how I got
1: started. That's great. So you move. So you got a games console first. I, I had an original Game Boy, but it wasn't till a little bit later. But my Japanese friend had one in the early eighties, uh, in the late eighties, when they first came out, and I was so jealous at that time where i lived in in derby there were no japanese families like it was so i don't think there were that many in the the whole of the uk at that time there might have been a handful so i was very very lucky to have this japanese friend and he, he kind of introduced me to anime and manga and all this kind of stuff. But he also had all the best games consoles. And so I when I was using an Atari ST and I was like just super lucky to even have one of those um, like in about 1989. Um, and then he he's cropping up with these Game Boys and Super Nes Super Famicoms and all this kind of stuff. So uh yeah it sounds like you started really early as well then.
3: <laughs> yeah I mean I didn't have a uh I didn't have a PC until much later in my life. But my mom's friend, she had a son uh, a fair bit older than me. He had a 286dx66 this is uh now we're going back now we're really going back so this is the original intel series of, of CPUs which was le- the most famous one i think was the 486dx66 uh, yes. if i remember correctly i um that was a very long very very long time ago and i was a child at the time so i had some access to a pc back then as well and i was just fascinated with with computer games so i was just lucky to have access to it because back then i mean it's not like now, you know, anyone listening who is like 20 or, or younger, maybe 25 or younger, probably can't remember a time when there weren't computers everywhere and in every house. But, you know, back then, you might find maybe one in a library, maybe, and maybe your maybe your school had access to a computer or two.
1: That's right. Yeah. By the
3: time I was a teenager, there were, you know, proper computer labs and, and everything. But by then, I'd long sort of gotten into uh, the, the the dark computer arts as it were it was a bit isolating to be fair I mean I really do love video games I think they bring people together I think they bring happiness to people and that's why I like to promote games but back then it was a bit isolating because uh, it was a super nerdy hobby and uh, you know it was like the electronic version of stamp collecting almost back then so it's kind of <laughs> like <laughs> I'm
2: yeah. glad
1: things have changed let's put it that way <laughs> I can relate I can relate. I was also that kid who spent many hours, like you know, peering. I had a ZX Spectrum first, really, really early on, and then later on, I had this Atari ST. And I was one of the only people I knew in the eighties who had a computer. And as you got into the nineties, more and more people got, th- you know, kind of people around you would start getting some games consoles and things. And then, yeah, so it was interesting how the uh, the, the video game explosion worked. But it's a really important point, I think. I can probably put down my poor eyesight to the fact that I spent so many t- so much time in you know, like a dark room peering over like obscure you know kind of old strategy games and stuff.
3: Uh, the old CRT monitors are just hilariously bad for your eyes. It's so funny because at the time, you know, I just thought computer games were the most amazing thing ever, and I just wanted to play them. But I was actually sort of forced off the screen every couple of hours because you could literally feel your eyes burning <laughs> if you stared too long at the screen. <laughs> You know, that's something that's also changed. That's a really good change that the technology has moved forward now, because a lot of people who are older than me and got involved in the early, the really early days, the green screen days, they actually did do a lot of damage to their eyes. So, I mean, that's kind of, a, you know, I'm glad that it's been fixed. But yeah, some of the early guys are actually, you can tell that they were in computers from from an early age because they've got these big thick glasses on
1: They've just yeah. destroyed their sight. <laughs> absolutely like it's like the sort of quintessential it or computer science professor with the with the beige jumper and the footlong eyebrows and the massive milk bottle thick glasses <laughs> like I had so many professors like that <laughs>
3: oh man it's hard. it's harsh but you know <laughs> that that is um the old screens because I, I was a senior engineer for 11 years as well so I'm I'm quite I'm quite au fait on the technical side of things but basically the old screens okay. were just basically like giant particle guns Yes. They just shot particles at the screen and unfortunately those particles sort of hit your eyes and they displaced moisture so your eyes would dry and it would they would burn your eyes out. So it's like <laughs> the things we did to ourselves because we liked computers early on, actually kind of horrifying when you look back on it now.
2: See, and then I always remember that there's a difference in our ages now because I think the first computer I had was a Pentium Two. So that's jumping quite a bit far forward. So um, <laughs> not yeah, too but- far
3: forward. the The Pentium 2 was actually the thing that came out next after the four eight six.
2: Oh, um, well, there you go. <laughs>
3: because the, they they considered the four eight six to be the Pentium one, right? So that's why there's no. That's why there's no Pentium one. There was just the Pentium two, three, and four. Then they stopped. They stopped numbering them after that. The three was like a giant card of a thing that plugged into your motherboard, like a graphics card.
1: So to put it into a bit of perspective people the the sort of games that you would be playing on the 286 would be something like the early Might and Magic games and you know Wizardry or I think maybe Command and yeah, uh, Command & Conquer would have worked on a, on, a, on a 286 or a 386. I think the 486 was the first computer I remember where you really needed that to play Doom uh, because the 386 would run Doom, but it was, was hella slow. <laughs> Whereas uh, Return to Castle Wolfenstein worked on the 386, if I remember right, quite well. And that probably worked on a 286 too. Edmund, I don't yeah. know you might be able to help me here. Just
3: just to, just to sort of bring us back to 4X games, I suppose, since this is meant to be a 4X podcast, Panzer General... Worked on those computers back then, and that is really the progenitor of the hex-based strategy game. In fact, you can see many cues to that, to UI design and and combat design, and how units interact and purchase menus and stuff, all in that in that game. From that game, spawned the 4X genre, in my opinion, and also the turn-based strategy genre. Um, so this is the era when 4X games actually, or You know the foundations for forex games were really starting to to appear. Games were getting more complicated, more interesting. Genres were starting to appear, and I, you know, I think the first real strategy game for me that really captured my imagination was was Panzer General, which I mean was an amazing game and got like a million sequels. I think there was like three sequels, and then there was like Star General and People's General, and and so on and so forth. But the first true forex game I played was a game called
1: Ascendancy, which I don't know if you guys know it. Yep, we're, I'm aware of it. I haven't actually played that one myself, but Rob talks about it very, very fondly. I think he thinks that it's this, you know, it's, he, he rates it as one of the most interesting 4X game designs that we had certainly early on.
3: It was so, it was so funny because it was, you know, it was a little bit panned because basically reviewers were like, well, this isn't Master of Orion. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't yeah. have Master of Orion. I had Ascendancy and I liked Ascendancy okay. So don't at me (laughs) that Ascendancy wasn't a very good game. I had it and I enjoyed it.
1: That's often the way with a lot of those early games, though. I mean, you look back at them now and um, not only are they aging from a game design perspective, uh, you know, particularly with user interfaces and just kind of like the overall presentation, but they they often took risks and they did things in a different way. And you certainly had a lot of genre crossover as well. I remember early, like in in the late 90s, I think... 4x games and rts kind of started blending you know t- together in a big way so you'd get games like uh, star wars supremacy or rebellion uh, i don't know if you remember that one it's kind of a 4x game but it also had some real-time combat in it did ascendancy have real-time combat or was that a purely st- turn-based game
3: Uh, it was like a weird hybrid thing it was it was turn-based in that you had days and you ended your turns diplomacy and buildings and such were all done in turns But if two fleets that were hostile to each other were in the same system, then you could sort of move them around in real time-ish based on how much movement points they had. But then each weapon could only be fired once per turn, if you know what I mean. So it kind of had like a weird, mostly turn-based combat system. This is me going off 15, 20-year-old memories here. But um, there were some real balance issues with the game. There was a thing with the AI where it would stop moving when it got engaged in combat but it wasn't really a very well thought out bit of AI. So if you equipped a load of very long range weapons, even if they were complete garbage and you shot at all the enemies, they would stop moving and then you could just sit there and blast them. (laughs) And they wouldn't fight back because they were out of range. And of course, younger me was like, this is where, this is where, you know, my dark and evil min-maxing started. As, uh, as you put it, uh, you know, I just sit there and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've got six weapons. That means I can take on six ships simultaneously by just shooting them all individually and making sure that they can't move. And then just spending the next like 40 turns slowly carving my way through their hit points with six crappy weapons, knowing that they would never move and they would never fight back. And you know what? The sad part is, is that like now I wouldn't do that because it's degenerate and boring but back then this was the most fun that I had ever had because I was like ah ha 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 I figured you out and and now I now you're at my mercy you know without really caring about how ridiculous it was so I won I won many 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 games of ascendancy on the hardest difficulty uh you know the inner ego coming out like Oh yeah! Look, I beat the game on the hardest difficulty. So easy because this one exploit that I had, I had worked out, made it literally impossible for me to lose.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think sean has got a question, but like, I, I, just want to draw parallels between you and another kind of min-max, kind of exploitish kind of gamer, which is uh, Legends of Total War, who just finds all the most kind of cheesy uh exploitative tactics that you can and then just batters the game on the hardest difficulty settings <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. I think there's a there's some pride to be had in that kind of approach to gaming. <laughs> Go ahead, Sean.
2: Yeah, so well we've established that you're you know your mid-max style of playing games and picking them apart on the highest difficulty. Moving to like your YouTube channel, is is that why you started up the YouTube channel? Like to sort of showcase h- how it is possible to beat all these games on the hardest difficulty? Like what was the impetus behind starting a no, YouTube channel. It wasn't it wouldn't be anything like that because I'm actually I'm actually not very egotistical, <laughs> right?
3: <laughs> despite despite what we've said here. I actually did it for a completely different reason. I actually like to teach people about games. Just going back to my story about, you know, I, I existed in a time before games were really a thing that were that was a known a known thing. So I spent a lot of time explaining what video games were to people who had no idea what video games were. Anyway I was involved in the Battletech community, the uh, HBS Battletech game came out, and there were all these arguments, constant arguments about which weapons were viable, which ones were not viable, blah, 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 you know, these weapons are good, these weapons are not good, and from my own experience, I knew that it was a matter of understanding the game, of skill and strategy, It it wasn't loadout that actually, loadout didn't matter as much as everybody thought it did, but no one... And I've, I've sort of found myself in polar opposition to entire communities before because of this attitude that I have to games. But no one believes you when you tell them that the thing that they think is the most important thing about the game is not the most important thing about the game. Like People come to very quick conclusions about what they think the most important elements of the game are. And when they come to that conclusion, it is impossible to move them from that position unless you've got rock solid evidence. So I laid down a challenge to a guy. I wish I could find the thread. But anyway, I said, oh, you know, what weapon would you say as a community is not viable? And they all got together and they're like, oh, the AC-2. So the AC-2 is an anti-aircraft gun, but it's in the Battletech game because for consistency, it needs to be there, basically. Now, in the Battletech game, you don't fight aircraft. You just fight other mechs and vehicles so its position in the game is pointless other than as a as a filler and for this reason it's not it's not very good i mean they buffed it and it's still bad it's probably yeah. four times worse than any other weapon in the game just to put it into perspective
1: it has its uses in tabletop um I, i'm i'm less familiar with hbs baltic i don't i don't really play it now but in tabletop at least which i am more familiar with because i play Mega Mech a lot the ac2 is one of these weapons where some people say it's just garbage and other people say, no, it's kind of got its uses. But it's one of those things that it, I don't think the rules translated from tabletop to, uh, to the HBS game. I yeah. Because like, it, was, it was an anti-aircraft weapon, really.
3: Yeah. One of the best things about it is that it has a very high range, so it's very hard to get away from it. And it has very high accuracy. And so the damage output is absolutely appalling for the weight. To, to give people an example, tonnage is like the currency that you spend to get damage and a medium laser will do one damage for one ton while the ac2 will do one damage for six tons then you have a then you have to spend another ton to get ammunition so you're talking like seven tons for one damage so it's literally seven times worse than the medium laser for damage output Yep. so it's it's not it's not a good weapon for sure but i just objected to this idea that it wasn't viable. So I started a video campaign. The videos are horrible quality. (laughs) No idea what I was doing, (laughs) but I just recorded myself playing with a big, big camera of me grinning away on it since shrunk quite a bit since then. And I decided that I would sit down and I would beat the campaign using only the AC2, no other weapons. If, If a mech could not mount the AC2, I would not use any weapons at all. If I was forced to use mechs that didn't that didn't have the mountings for it, I would just use basic melee with them. There are some missions where you're given a lance of mechs that are not your own, that are pre-configured, and I wouldn't use any of the weapons. I would just basic melee the other mechs to death. And I beat the campaign by the skin of my teeth. But I just really wanted to drive home the point that it is not about your loadout. It's about understanding the game, understanding the systems, and if your strategies are good, if your tactics are good, you can win no matter what your loadout is. Someone can give you four mechs of, of any loadout of any kind, and you can win as long as you understand the fundamentals of the game. And then I went on to make a series of guides explaining basic concepts about because I like to teach. So I then afterwards I made the guides explaining the methodology that I used to beat the game. Things like line of sight, I did a video on line of sight control a video on using the phase system to get two turns at the same time, and so on and so on and so forth. And so that is how the YouTube channel started. It started with me basically wanting to create evidence to support my opinion, which happened to be different from everybody else's. But I was right, so I had to do it.
1: (laughs) I've got to say, right, that I've got some criticisms about HBS BattleTech actually, but I, I think that that is a mark of a good game that you that you're not tied into playing, you know, in in a, in a min max way. Like if you if you play in a suboptimal way, let's say, it's still viable to win. And I think that you know to some extent that lends weight to the argument that it's a, a reasonably well designed game. What would you say?
3: I suppose I mean it depends on how you think about it. But basically, what I was doing was I was I was min maxing, if you will, the control of the mechs the the effectiveness of every of every movement of of forcing the forcing the the AI into like a conga line of death manipulating the AI and stuff like that but I guess the point I was trying to drive home was that if you're if you're if you're very skillful if you understand the mechanics then you you can you can win no matter what you can win from any position you've just got to understand what the what the potential solutions are to whatever the situation it, that you, that you're in is and I guess what what I really wanted to attack was this was people just making excuses, basically, you know I don't have good weapons, I don't have good mechs, I don't have x, y, or Z, so therefore you know I can't win in a particular position, but that's that's not true. I want people to I wanted people to understand that you can you can win, you just got to maybe take a step back, have a look at the situation, then think about what you have what you don't have and from those things you can you can come up with an answer because i you know this sort of leads into why i like to manage communities and so on like so on is i just didn't want these i didn't want people fruitlessly arguing over what <laughs> what was viable and what wasn't viable everything is viable you just you just got to just to practice really and just look you know look internally to your own your own strategies and capabilities don't don't blame don't blame stuff don't blame the tools because it doesn't get you anywhere
2: absolutely well said i gotta say that's kind of amazing because it seems like you're sort of like the strategy gamer equivalent of the guy that beats dark souls with the guitar hero controller it's like-
3: <laughs> but you know it's, it's a similar kind of thing isn't it it's you know i'm I'm sure that guy too has seen a, you know his own community being torn about torn apart by kind of fruitless arguments about x y or z and it's like you know what well, you know actually you, you can you can beat the game no matter what just you know if you take the time to practice and learn, then you can you can win.
2: Yeah, that's wicked. I, I, I do enjoy HPS Battletech as well. I've been playing a couple of different mods, like Battletech Advanced, and I checked out BTR as well.
3: Battletech Revised. Yeah, that's the mod that I came up with because my issue with Battletech has always been that it's not balanced and it's never been fixed. So what I did was pretty simple, was I used a series of algorithms to assign a value to each weapon and then the ones that had poor values are then um, cut their weight down until their scores were similar to other weapons and then with the weight with the spare weight that that generated we then just put more armor or more more engine power on the mechs that were that had these weapons to bring them in line with with everything else because one of the issues with BattleTech is when you play a mission it just picks the AI has like a budget And it just buys, it buys some mechs, but it's a bit random. So, I mean, it could buy, for example, four hunchbacks, which are extremely dangerous mechs, especially the laser version, or it could buy like four cicadas, which are similar tonnage, but they're absolute garbage. So I wanted to even the system such that every stock mech, because the AI only gets to use stock mechs. So I wanted every stock mech to actually be a capable machine in its own right. That was the philosophy behind BTR. Rather than just add more and more and more and more stuff, more and more powerful stuff, I wanted the AI to actually... It's basically, it's a mod that's like a love letter to the AI. (laughs) I I know all the flaws of the AI because I mercilessly exploit them. So redesign the mechs in such a way that the AI can actually use them properly or use them better. And that is where the difficulty of BTR comes from. It's kind of like a challenge for me. I didn't really design it for anybody else. I just, I did it for me and I hope that other people like it.
2: Well, I've got to say, I do quite enjoy it all the same. I've only put a few hours into it. I think my, my main go-to one is BTA, but I from the little I have played of it, I found the combat was really well-paced. Like I go into it and there's, the battle is over in about 15 minutes. So it's 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 good for that kind of, if you want to jump in, because I don't have a lot of time to play nowadays. So it's like I can jump in, sm- you know, I can do Flight of a Different Planet, smash out two missions in like, forty five minutes and it's done, so I found it plays really smoothly uh the the battles are quite lethal as well, I think like they're they're yeah much faster as a result
3: yeah the AI does not handle evasion very well so if you if you this is another thing that I discovered in in battletech is uh if you stack evasion high enough, the a i kind of has a meltdown and it tries to like use one laser to reduce your evasion it's instead of volleying at you because it thinks it's you know if it's got like a less than thirty percent chance to hit it doesn't bother to fire all of its weapons it just fires one to try and strip the evasion and a lot of mods have got like permanent evasion uh, they've enhanced the invasion of the evasion of lights in some way but this doesn't account for the fact that if you actually focus on evading i.e if you sprint instead of attacking you can create a situation where the ai will actually really fail to engage your units and therefore light mix have become almost indestructible effectively because the ai does not understand how to engage them and i kind of wanted to nerf that a little bit so that the ai has a, a little bit more accuracy so it can keep on putting the hurt on you even if you try that kind of strategy which, which is kind of funny really because this is another thing is like i'm always experimenting with stuff that no no one else does you know what people want to do in a game like that is you you know you can attack or you can move an attack or you can sprint which means that you can't attack you can just move. And so people didn't really experiment much with just sprinting around, with just moving. Because, I mean, if you're just moving, you're not attacking, right? Which means you're not killing the enemy. And so to everybody, this feels, felt like a wasted turn. But I started sprinting around with lights, and I quickly realized, this is another challenge thing, like, oh, you know, are lights good or not? So I did another challenge run called, there are four lights, you know, with Picard on the front. <laughs>
0: There are
2: four (laughs) lights! (laughs) How many lights do you see? Four!
3: (laughs) Anyway, um, memes aside, I started sprinting with these light mechs a lot, and I realized that the AI just would not target them or engage them properly. So you could then choose the juiciest positions to stand in, i.e. right behind the other guy and then even though you don't have much firepower on a light mech, well, when you unload every weapon you have into the rear reactor, that's they go down like a sack of spuds. And so it turned out that lights are actually incredibly deadly, but they need good pilots. And when you play with lights normally, this is game design stuff here, you have a natural progression, as in your pilots are getting better and better, and your mechs are getting better and better. But what people did not do, or didn't attempt to do, was take their really good precious pilots and then put them back in light mechs. But they never had really good pilots at the beginning because it was the beginning of the game. And pilots are, and I know this is a joke about Battletech, Oh, uh, spare the metal and uh, lose the meat or whatever it is. Um, But it's not true in the actual game. The pilots are the most precious resource, like full stop. You know, it can take like 40 missions, 50 missions to train up a pilot but uh, a mech can be salvaged in a single mission. So the pilots are the most important things. And no one wanted to put their pilots in a a light mech with a quarter of the hit points of an assault mech, but you actually need a good pilot in a light mech for it to have that extra evasion, which makes the AI go bonkers and thus turns the light into an invincible god it very quickly got comical. I remember some comments that some people made as it got sort of deeper in and I started doing harder and harder missions with just lights. And some guy said, I've been watching this series shocked that four light mechs can take on a lance of heavies and win. And now I'm watching this episode and not only can you do it with four, but you can do it with just two. <laughs> and uh, it, it it was basically, it was a map where you start in a valley and I got a horrible start position at the bottom of this valley. And I took two really severe leg hits on two of my lights right at the start, which led me to be forced to eject them. So I only had two mechs left and the whole mission to go. And I thought, well, I'll just carry on playing. What You know, what the hell? The other two mechs aren't damaged. We'll just keep going. And I managed to clean out the mission with just two, with just two Vex. <laughs> that sounds awesome, man. And, uh, you know, so it, it was ludicrously powerful. It really was. But it just takes that bit of experimentation to discover these, these things. I'm currently um, dragging us towards 4X again. I'm currently playing a game called Terra Invicta. I don't know if you've heard of it.
1: Yes, we're familiar.
3: And I'm once again at odds with the community. <laughs> I haven't made the guide yet. I'm planning the guide, but a lot of the strategies that people are using at the moment in Terran and Victor involve very fragile expanding and attacking to kind of win as fast as possible. And uh, the developers of the game, who are, I believe they're the team behind Long War, they do not like people finishing their games quickly. So they're constantly patching out the various strategies that have been used to win the game fast. Usually involves getting into space quickly, getting particular technologies quickly, and then trying to hamstring the AI as fast as possible. Now, I knew nothing about the game going in, so I played my standard Iron Man strategy, which is play to not lose. I knew that the lose condition was to lose Earth, so I was just focused on consolidating my as much control of Earth as possible, building up land-based armies, and denying landings and stuff. And I've just worked myself into a position where I cannot possibly, I cannot possibly lose the game. So winning has become inevitable within a certain time frame, And it was not difficult to do. So, you know, a lot of people are looking at these guides and saying, oh, you know, I can't execute this. Like, don't get me wrong. They're the correct strategy if you're trying to speed, the, speed run the game, right? Fair enough. I mean, you know, really good, really clean, precise strategies on how to beat the game super fast. But like anyone who of any skill level could play the style that I'm using in my current campaign and beat the game or not lose the game which is almost the same thing because I'm playing to not lose I'm not playing to win I'm playing to make sure that I can't lose and then I'm going to and I'm trying to figure out how to win if you see what I mean it's it's a different approach so it will be funny to see what the reactions are when I make a guide and basically give the complete opposite advice to everyone else. Which everyone else is giving the advice to go to space as quickly as possible and start trying to hamstring the aliens economy. And my current strategy is to just leave them do whatever they want in space and consolidate my my position on Earth and now I have like three fifths of Earth completely under my control. And any alien landings are immediately wiped out by the like thirty or so armies that I have. So they can't do anything. They can't they can't touch they can't touch Earth at all and now i'm just getting into space with the end game technology so um yeah it's 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 pretty interesting but i've
1: i've once again sort of walked down a weird a weird alley <laughs> I can't help but feel that you're walking this kind of karmic path. You're paying for this uh, ex- like incredibly cheesy exploit that you were using to win Ascendancy. And now you're having to kind of like write your kind of karma in some, in some gaming way. <laughs> I loved it. I was listening with fascination with the the story about Battletech because One of the things with Battletech games, right, video game version of Battletech, is that in order to kind of satisfy that kind of, the players need to start small and get bigger and, you know, and in the end you're running around with four atlases or whatever. Uh, Those kind of games, they don't always balance the different weight classes too well, whereas in the the tabletop game, you generally, you want a bit of a mix of mechs. It depends on how many you're using, but having four mechs, four light mechs with superb pilots is very, very viable, especially if you're running something like, you know, four Jenners or something can be absolutely deadly if you've got really good pilots so I, I was kind of interested to hear how hbs's game it's sort of on the surface didn't really seem to work in that respect and then yeah yet it, does know. So. <laughs> it, it does though but it does though yeah exactly and you've kind of you've shown that and, and i think again with terror and Victor, like i kind of bounced off that game i don't dislike it uh, i've already got one love affair with a big complex obtuse opaque strategy game which is it's shadow, be empire. shadow empire isn't it right yeah and um <laughs> I knew yeah <laughs> I'm I, that's, that's my jam. And I love I love Shadow Empire. It's, my, it's one of my favorite games. But so I, when I got, when I started looking at Terror Victor, and I was watching um, Perun's videos a little bit on it and I was like, wow, this looks great, but I don't think i got time to play this and kind of get into Shadow Empire and play Dominions and Conquest release and some of these other weird, obscure games I play. So I'm interested to see where Terror Invictor is going. And I'm heartened to hear that the uh, the developer is kind of trying to make it so that Easy cheesy, cheesy strategies are being patched out. I, I I like that. I think if they can do that in a way that doesn't make players feel like you know they're constantly being hamstrung, um, you know, and there's a bit of a balancing act to go there. But that that sounds encouraging to me.
3: This this is the thing that that bugs me about guides on how on high high skill level execution strategy guides is when the developer comes along and nerfs one key part of it, it just falls apart, right? Like, um, you know, the classic example is um, if you ever play an FPS game and there's some weapon that's like a one shotter, it's like a rocket launcher or something or a sniper rifle kills in one hit. There's this idea in games design of something called a threshold. So a threshold is where if you've got 100 health and a weapon does 140 damage, right? The threshold is 100. The 40 doesn't matter because, you know, who cares if they're dead or super, super dead, right? (laughs) They just got to be dead. But when you nerf something and it drops below a threshold, so say the weapon now does 95, not 100, that completely changes everything. That is a a massive difference. On paper, it doesn't look like a huge difference. If I nerf a weapon from doing 102 damage to doing 99 damage, that doesn't seem like a huge nerf, but it's an absolutely massive nerf. It's like a 2x nerf because... It's the difference between passing the threshold and not passing the threshold, right, and a lot of these high end you know very precise strategies, which I love i mean they're they're often creative and and very very interesting, but as soon as something is even slightly nerfed somewhere enough that critical thresholds are passed, the whole thing falls apart there's no there's no stability to it, and because I'm an Iron Man player because I often have to stream professionally some and i have to stream i have to stream strategy games that are not even released yet you know stuff that there's no guides for there's no help it's just me and the developer i can't play like that i have to play i have to play to not lose not play to to follow an incredibly razor thin sort of wire to the best possible win but unfortunately when people get onto those guides and they're following it along and uh, maybe you know they're they're good enough to execute the guide correctly and that's that's totally fine and cool And then the developer comes along and just slightly nerfs a few things and then suddenly their game falls apart. It's very fragile. So what I try and teach on my channel is approaches, approaches to gameplay. I have a little series called Edmund's Classroom talking about how to approach games rather than specific strategies.
1: Just quickly, Edmund, is this like a sort of a systems rather than goals approach, would you say? Is that a way of kind of Breaking down what you're saying is you, you try to learn a system towards approaching a, a thing rather than specific goals because that's a more kind of it's a better it's a better way of bettering yourself in a sense and I think if you just try to achieve specific goals within a task then that's a very static thing that can be you know that can be wobbled and you can fall it can fall over like a tower whereas if you have developed a strong system towards approaching things then that's more flexible is is that kind of what you're getting at.
3: Yeah, it's like, I have some Panzer Corps 2 guides. So Panzer 2 is another uh, kind of turn-based strategy game. Great game. Sort of very similar to most 4Xs when it comes to combat. Obviously, it's not a 4X game, but it's it's got a similar kind of Age of Wonders style combat, but it's a World War Two game. I did a video called Developing Your Standard. And so I have a standard setup when I, I don't know what, I've never played the mission before. I don't know anything about the mission. So I have a standard loadout. It's like 20% infantry, 20% tanks, at least two anti-aircraft guns, usually three fighters, like a few 10% bombers, something along those lines. A general setup, because I know that with that setup, I have all the tools to deal with any situation. Now, obviously, there is potential to lose there in that if I play the mission and there's like 100 bombers coming at me. And you know, I've only got ten, I've only got two anti-aircraft guns and three fighters. Obviously I can't hold off a wall of bombers, so I'm gonna be in trouble. But I do have some tools for stopping bombers. Now in that situation, you would obviously have to play the mission again and, and customize your setup. But this kind of standard play allows you to deal with 99% of situations. It's it's once again, it's playing to not not lose. If you've got all the tools, if you've got a little bit of everything. Then, then you at least have the thing that you might need, right? You know, if they've got a, a load of anti-tank guns on a hill, then yes, you've got tanks, so you can pull those away. But you've also got infantry, so you can bring those in. And you've got artillery. You brought a little bit of, of everything that you might potentially need. Now you just have to apply those tools to the situations that you encounter. But if you don't bring those tools, if you just decide to bring a load of tanks, then you're you're done. <laughs> you're smoked. Yeah. It's an approach that I developed back when I used to play Magic the Gathering. I know the dreaded words. um I used <laughs> to play in Magic the Gathering tournaments, and so I would have a standard deck, if you will. I would build a build around this idea that, oh, what if they've got what if they've got creature removal? What if they've got permanent removal? What if they've got direct damage? What if I don't know what my opponent's got? You know, you just get in the tournaments I played. You used to get like seven booster packs, and you just had to make a deck. So I would just make. A deck that could more or less be decent against any potential issue, and then you know you have a you have a sideboard, so then after the first match, I would then analyze their deck, and if I needed to shuffle some things in and shuffle some things out that weren't useful, that's fine, but it gave me a chance to win. I always had a chance to win every first engagement I did not need information on the enemy to have a chance of winning that's what i'm trying to teach people is this idea that if you build something that is just overall a good solid thing, if you develop a strategy that is just a good overall solid strategy, then you you have the potential to win in every situation.
1: I see. I'm, I'm interested to know, like with that specific game, for example, uh, this is something, by the way, I, I actually saw in your video, you say on one of your videos, you don't usually like talking about games design with non-games designers because it kind of often kind of boils down into <laughs> an argument over, you know, just kind of opinion. And I completely agree. And I'm one of these annoying people who's, who knows a bit of game design, but I didn't study it. I've got a few books that I've read, you know, I've read a few. Books, but I, I am not a game designer. <laughs> so, um but I am. I, I find it a fascinating topic, and it's interesting to talk to you because you know that is you did that, that was your degree, wasn't it? I think.
3: Yeah, I did. I did an honors.
1: Absolutely right. That. Okay, so yeah. and so let's. I mean, if we talk, look at Panzercore 2 When we were talking about game, I was talking about games design with uh, Lucid Tactics, who's a dominions player, um, and he's he's kind of like. He's got a big community of dominions multiplayer people on his channel uh, so he's kind of like one of the figureheads of the dominions thing i guess uh, you probably hate to be described like that but anyway lucid and i were talking <laughs> and we were talking about this idea of video games having uh, particularly sandboxy sorry particularly 4x games they have this kind of like that you can see it in terms of a polarity between kind of sandbox like play on one side and sort of puzzle based play on another so if we were going to look at war games for example you might put, let's say, like on the on the sandbox extreme, you might have Sim City, where it's very much there's very little pressure in order to kind of do what you need to do. You can just kind of pick and choose from the the toys that you're given. And then on the very other end of the uh, of the spectrum, you might have something like Tetris, yeah, where it's you know there is a there is a right move or chess, you know, there is a right move to make at that point, and if you don't make it, you're probably going to lose. But most games fall somewhere in between the two, and I think Panzer Corps too, uh, and you know Panzer General before it. The 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 original campaign maps they are closer towards the puzzle aspect I'd say than the sandbox. But Panzercore Two now has this um, procedurally generated map thing. Now it gives you maps where well you don't know what's coming, and your standard build in that respect is going to be really important in that procedurally generated map, particularly if you don't know what's coming. Uh, How do you think this kind of this interplay between sandbox and puzzle thing uh, affects? games design and how you approach, you know, going through a game like, do you play many scripted games or are you you more into the procedurally generated stuff?
3: I mean, I like both, but a controversial opinion here. If, if a game requires prior knowledge to beat, then I don't think it's a well-designed game. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Uh, everyone who's got a game like that. I'll apologize in advance, but I feel like if I, if I'm a keen strategy game player and I've beaten 20, 20 other strategy games or whatever or I'm a keen FPS game player. Let's let's go with FPS here because you know the gameplay is always fundamentally the same in FPS which is you know you have a first person view you've got your guns you shoot the enemy with your guns. Now I feel like a person who has those core skills of you know understanding cover and line of sight and ammunition management and all those kind of skills that they've built up playing all the first person shooter games that they played in the past if they've got those skills They should be able to sit down in front of your FPS and apply those skills and play the game to a high, you know, to a reasonable standard, to a high standard, you know, whatever. I don't like what I want to call crystal ball gameplay. And the first game that had crystal ball gameplay, which I absolutely hated. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, going to offend a load of people here because it's a classic game, which I'm going to say I didn't like is Tomb Raider. Because I remember this bit where there's a, there's a ramp that you go up. And a boulder comes down and it just kills you if you don't know it's there. And the issue with it was that the timing on the boulder was so tight that in order to avoid it, what you really needed to do was you needed to sort of turn around and walk up the, the ramp backwards, trigger it, and there's like a little bit of a rumble when you trigger it, right. and then run run you know forwards down the ramp as it were because you're facing the correct way because you walked up the ramp backwards to safely evade the boulder and then you can go up and progress with the rest of the level right i agree that's bad yeah and this is uh (laughs) this is sort of what happens in dark souls a little bit is it another controversial opinion i don't believe that dark souls is is hard i just believe that it punishes people who haven't played it before if you know what i mean (laughs) if you know that the wall of flame is coming then you don't even step where, it, where, it, where it's going to be in the first place. But if you don't know, it just gets you. And I don't like punishing people, or I don't think games should punish people for playing the game in a perfectly reasonable way, like a perfectly reasonable person would do, right? Now, I do understand that Panzer 2's base campaign is quite hard, but I, did, I personally did beat it with standard play. Barely, there are points in the because uh, i 've still got the video series up on my channel uh, i've got them all neatly organized into playlists, so if you want to look at my horrifying past, you can um, <laughs> but um, you know i wasn 't so good then. there was one level where I scraped by with about three hundred prestige, which is which is nothing, and half of my units were destroyed, but I did eventually win on my first attempt, by using some very robust standard play, and obviously my experience from games like People's General, from Panzer General, from the original Panzer Corps, and all those other kind of games I played in the past, Shattered Union, so on and so forth. To me, good games and good game design treads that thin line where a very, very good player could sit down without prior knowledge and beat it but perhaps maybe a, a more, uh, you know, a lesser skilled player or a more average player might need a bit of, you know, trying, trying again. I just don't like the idea that for the sin of not having played before, I have to lose. I absolutely hate that. It's, it's horrible to me. It's like the worst feeling when I play a mission and I'm like, well, I lost because I didn't know this. And there was no way for me to know. There was no possible way for me to know the issue that I faced. I call this landmine gameplay. So here's here's one for your uh, for your lexicon. Sure, landmine gameplay is this idea that you're walking along and then you stand on a landmine and you're just blown to bits. So you lose instantly. But then when you understand, when you know that there's a landmine there, you're not about to step on it again. So you you go from something that is you know a situation that causes you to lose instantly and thus completely ruins your your position in the game a situation that is of no threat whatsoever because you know it's there
1: yes actually the resident evil games are kind of full of that sort of stuff and i love those games by the way but they 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 are guilty (laughs) i think a little bit of that
3: (laughs) yeah it's it's not fun at all because if you understand where all the landmines are then you just don't stand on them and there's no fun to be had there but if you if you don't know where they are and you stand on one and you just get blown to bits and there's no way to detect them no way to scout them the, the, you know, you just blunder into one, and then you you're done. Then that's not fun either. You know, no one finds it fun to do some kind of really tedious action where they search each individual tile of ground looking for landmines or, or whatever. It's horrible. Just just don't do it at all. <laughs> it's you know, yeah. I don't mind ambushes and stuff. That's not the same. You know, you can you you can have robust scouting me- methods to find ambushes and things. If you blunder into an ambush, but it feels fair. And that's not a problem. But landmines don't feel fair at all. You just stand on one and you're blown to bits. And that that's what I hate in games is that. And puzzle games can tend to lean on that or be very close to it.
1: Now, I'm going to push back a little bit uh, just for Sean. I think Sean's got a question too. Um, but I, I don't mind games where you have to play repeatedly to get better at them. But I don't think that's quite what you're talking about, is it? You're not, You're not talking about games that are excessively difficult and require you know guides to play i think you're talking no, this no. landmine gameplay thing it's literally situations where you it's an instant lose until you understand it yeah, and basically. I, th- there's an element of game. like i quite like opacity in game mechanics and this is this is my unpopular opinion which i uh, people hate <laughs> <laughs> whenever i tell people this, they hate it you can share I your unpopular like the- opinions with me i won't judge you sure so but like uh, one of the things i found with distant worlds the original distant Worlds universe which i love by the way As soon as I read a guide on optimal gameplay, it kind of ruined it for me. And that game is kind of interesting because it does have some opacity built in. There's some like random modifiers to some of the dice rolls and stuff that go on behind the scenes deliberately to stop people excessively min-maxing. I don't know if that's the reason, but that it has that knock-on effect and i quite like that that's what i like about shadow empire as well i don't feel like it's it's simplistic enough that if i were to get my calculator out like i did a computer science degree so I, i'm quite capable of sitting down doing the mathematics working out all the you know all the optimal gameplay but i just don't find that fun i, I like some mild min-maxing in my gameplay um, I but I'm not like you I'm I don't have that kind of engineering brain actually uh, the, the the computer science degree was a bad was a bad match for me I <laughs> uh, I don't enjoy that but I I do enjoy it in small amounts like I like to f- fiddle with you know wh- what you know what's the best DPS on this kind of thing or whatever but if I feel that I can work out an optimal playstyle quite quickly I'm not interested and I get bored of games quite fast so I like Shadow Empire because there's so much going on I feel like it's you know I'm always going to be finding something new in there and the there's certain opacity you know the exact mechanics of the game aren't always laid bare so you know it's i don't feel that someone like you could come along and easily kind of just go okay well you know that you just want to do this and then this and then this and then you've won and i I think that that's yeah that's kind of my unpopular take because a lot of people i know a lot of gamers particularly people who like them in maxing really dislike that they really want to know they want to be able to see everything so they can kind of work out the you know the ins and outs of things and i think that's absolutely valid as well i think it's just a different approach to gaming
2: completely get where you're coming from actually edmund because you actually gave me a whole bunch of flashbacks to games i used to play as a kid and i'm like oh my god i hated that like there was i was at abe's odyssey was one of them as a kid and i I know what you're talking about it's like it's like um like it's not it's not opacity or complexity that you're talking about it's just like stuff that requires rote memorization to beat like you know when the barrel's going to fall from the sky and crush you, or you know when the wild animal's going to pop out and stomp you into meat on the ground. Like when, once you learn that, you can you can just get around that obstacle, and it's irrelevant. I, I get where you're coming from with that. And then, but when I'm when I'm playing games, I don't. I'm not really a min maxer kind of guy. Like I'm more playing for the journey than for the for the victory for the conclusion. So I don't really get into the nuts and bolts of it. But no, I, I completely get where you're coming from. <laughs> it was just really funny when you were talking. I was like, oh my God, I remember games like that.
3: Yeah, and strategy games do it as well, but they do it in a slightly different way sometimes in that. Uh, so to give you an example, Order of Battle was a game that I didn't 100% get on with, with, the, with the first campaign. I played the Pacific campaign first, and I don't know anything about the Pacific War, okay? I mean, I have studied history. I studied the Battle for Stalingrad. Part of my uh, my history education, but we're not really taught much about what happened in the Pacific in Europe. I mean, why would we be? There's there's so much World War II stuff to know. That's more that's more relevant to home than the th- the th- the theater that you know is on the other side of the planet. So I went into the Order of Battle Pacific blind. You know, once again, it's like this this idea of landmines in that everyone every American understands that the Pacific battle was a carrier battle. But I didn't. So I just carried on padding out my Navy with destroyers and battleships. And then I literally brute forced my way through most of the campaign with like no carriers. And then I finally got to a mission and the mission was like, you have to deploy your carriers here. And secondary objective, don't lose any carriers. And I'm like, I was supposed to have carriers. (laughs) I hadn't, I hadn't bought any the game had not made me buy any and i never felt the need to have them so i never bought them and you know so in a strategy game they can do this thing where you have limited resources say especially at the start of the game and you need to you know you can buy like one thing so what do you buy do you buy artillery do you buy an anti-aircraft gun do you buy a bomber well if you don't have the information if the mission briefing doesn't give you the information oh Enemy fighters in the area. Okay, I'll bring the anti-aircraft gun. Or no enemy air support expected. Okay, I'll buy a bomber. Or, you know, um, enemy fortifications present. Oh, so I might get an artillery. But I've only got the money to pick one, and I haven't been given the information I need. It's possible to start the mission in a position where you can't win it because you didn't know to buy the thing that you needed (laughs) because the game never told you to buy it. And you don't know. So you've basically, you've stood on this theoretical landmine and blown your leg off before you even get to the mission to play it. And then you play the mission and you're like, oh, there's an enemy bomber bombing the bombing the garbage out of me and I don't have an AA gun and I can't afford one.
1: Oops. <laughs> I needed to buy one. Edmund, some of the early criticism of Terror Invicta that I heard and I didn't really feel this myself because I didn't really play it a whole lot, but one of the early pieces of criticism was that people felt that you could kind of lose in the early game and not really realize you'd lost until about 15 hours in. and uh, how, do you feel that, how do you feel about that criticism? Do you think that that's still a, an issue in the game?
3: That's true if you follow the meta that the Terra and Victor community has, which is to race to space because uh... because if you race to space and you win, you start winning. Then that sets you up to win the game. And what happens on Earth doesn't matter. But if you start to lose and you're forced back to Earth and your position on Earth is poor, then the aliens can just step in and finish you off, right? So uh, okay. you, it's a strategy built on sand. If it works, it's great and you'll beat the game in like 20 or 30 hours or something. Like my series, my Terra and Victor series, and I apologize, there were some microphone problems early on. So uh, the gain is a bit loud on like the first 30 episodes. But I just, as I said, I focused on not losing. So I focused on expanding on on Earth. And, you know, for that reason, I'm much further, you know, most other YouTubers are finished by like, I think like 2050 or something. I mean, I'm like in 2044 or something, and I'm nowhere near winning the game. But I have an, an unassailable position on Earth. So I do think that, you know, chasing the quick victory is great, but it's a strategy built on sand. So if it goes wrong, then suddenly you find yourself in a losing position. And so in that way, I understand the the thought that, oh, you could be 30 hours in and you've already lost. Because if that strategy is very all or nothing, right? It's it's what it's what StarCraft pros would call an all-in. It works or you lose. It's just that in Terror and Victor, it takes 30 hours to execute. <laughs> so it
2: can, yeah, it can create that side.
3: feeling that you have lost early on but not not known that you have lost and the develop as i said before the developers are patching stuff like that out so it works against you so my advice to everybody before i actually make my guide for the game a very simple piece of advice is play to not lose make sure that the aliens can't get established on earth develop earth's militaries consolidate earth's countries into you know more manageable districts and just prevent them. I'm, I'm presuming that you're one of the human factions here and that you're trying to prevent the aliens from taking over. If you're with one of the alien factions, obviously this advice is no good. But yeah, just they, they have to take 65% of the Earth to win. So if you hold 50% of Earth, they can't win, right? It's like Platinum Angel from uh, from uh, Magic the Gathering, right? You, <laughs> you cannot lose and your opponent cannot win, right? Written on the card. Well, that's great. That's a great position to be in, right? they can just work out how to win.
2: So if, hang on, if I was to simplify this a lot, you're basically turtling. Is that right? Like if you, if you're playing a real time strategy or or something like that, it would basically be the turtle strategy.
3: Right. But so this is another thing, right? Attacking always beats defending always, always because if attacking wasn't better than defending, then, then the game would always end in a stalemate, right? So developers have to make sure that attacking is better than defending because otherwise no one wins. You, it always ends in a stalemate but attacking is not just about wiping out the enemy attacking is also aggressively taking what is not yours in strategy games ie expanding ie taking the whole map taking all the resources aggressively pushing people off those same resources so a strategy isn't necessarily one of defending it's one of i'm I'm basically slowly but surely taking everything from everybody on earth and thus. Denying them Earth completely, and from that position, I then become unassailable, and then I will go on the attack in space, which is not quite the same as defending. I mean, defending is just sitting there and defending what you have and thus you know prevent you know preventing people from taking what is yours. But you have to go a step beyond that. You actually have to keep on expanding and and, and taking resources and sucking the as you were sucking the oxygen out of the room for for the other factions. So it's not quite the same. You just have to always remember that you no matter how well you defend, no one ever won a game defending, right? The victory condition is always to kill the other guy or take the other guy out or or starve the other guy. But in some games or what a lot of people are doing is a lot of well-meaning and very skillful players are taking the direct route of trying to kill the aliens as fast as possible. I'm taking the route of trying to take all the resources and hold all the cards and I'm taking my time doing it so I'm I'm preventing losses as it were as I as I do it I'm just quietly like you know if two factions are fighting each other and once they've exhausted each other I'll just come in and steal their steal parts of their territory and so on and so forth so it's not quite the same as turtling because turtling doesn't doesn't enable you to win but slowly taking over the whole map and suffocating the other person to death does so that's that's the strategy
2: Fair enough. I do actually, I do actually have Terra and Victor, but I saw all the stuff about how it's so long to get into and so long to play, and I was like, I, I backed it just because I like Pavonis Interactive. I like what they did with Long War, but I just was like, I don't have time for this anymore. I, I can't <laughs> play it. It's going to take way too long. And then I dived into Anno Eighteen Hundred, and it's basically just consumed my life. So Yeah. I know often we end up meeting up on different Discord servers for various strategy games. And I think one of your first videos that I saw, because I was introduced to your channel quite late, was Corruption 2029. I think it was. And I was watching you play it on the ultra hard mode. I was looking at this guy and I'm like, man, I'm flat out doing this on standard mode. It's like I'm playing Frisbee and this guy's playing Olympic Discus. It's crazy. And... (laughs) I noticed just recently that you were playing King Arthur and that you saw I saw in the latest monthly update you rate it quite highly. So would you like to expand on that a bit? Because I've played it. I haven't played it in a long time and sort of want to get an idea of where it's at.
3: I really like King Arthur. It's one of the best games I've played this year. No no shadow of a lie. So one thing that I find kind of boring is procedurally generated missions can get really samey. But they haven't done that in King Arthur. They've they've handcrafted every mission and they're really good. They're really well thought out. It sort of plays like medieval XCOM. It's something new. I don't think anyone's really delved into the old religions of the UK as a, as a theme, particularly for strategy games. And yeah, it's just really, it's really well thought out. I've been really enjoying it. It is hard, but it feels fair. Um, I have It has become a challenge run over time because I was playing on the hardest difficulty, and that was actually quite satisfying for a long time. And then um, I, got, I bumped into Merlin and the episodes with Merlin are just going out now. I, I record in advance just in case I'm sick or, or, or uh, I have to go away or something so that there's, there's daily content. Um, not too far in advance, but usually like a couple of weeks or three weeks in advance or something like that. And I ended up banishing Merlin from my team because he was just so, so overpowered that he made the game trivial. But as soon as I took him out of my party and started using, you know, other characters again, it got right back to being really good and really engaging. I've really enjoyed it. It's it's very well thought out and they haven't taken any design shortcuts. A lot of, you know, I hate to pick on roguelites here, but often roguelites can be made in a really lazy way in that they have procedurally generated content and they're like, well, procedurally generated content means it will just make infinite content for the players and therefore I don't have to do anything at all
1: woohoo no 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 that doesn't work
3: <laughs> i just have to i just have to adjust the procedural generator based on the player's position in the game or or the thing i hate the most is where they sync your level to the enemy level that is the absolute worst for me i just hate it because it's not it's not entertaining you can really you can feel at least in my opinion you can feel the time and effort that has gone into each level where the designer has obviously sat down and thought what You know, what position does the player potentially have at this time? Not using the game to go, oh yeah, this player is this many levels and has this equipment and whatever, and then changing the level based on what the player has. But actually the developer sitting down and thinking, okay, what would a player, a good player have at this point? And then setting that challenge, which means if you fall behind, then you suddenly find yourself in trouble. But if you get ahead, then it gets a little bit easier. And I like that feeling of, especially when the game is on the harder side and on the hardest difficulty, it is very hard. Um, I like that feeling of, oh, I'm falling behind and it's getting, you know, the, the difficulty is starting to really test my capabilities. And, uh, you know, I nearly lost characters on like three or four different occasions. I love that feeling of fairness, but but being pushed to my limits strategically. And procedural games, a lot of the time, they They cheat, they look at what you have, and then they design a challenge based on what you have. And I just tear games like those apart uh, because I I quickly understand or I quickly come to understand how the system works. And then I play the system, not the game. And that's it. Then then the game is dead to me (laughs) because once I understand the system, it's game over for the game. There's no
1: challenge at all. Uh, that's how I feel as well. That's what I was saying earlier on. It's like once you've worked, once you've got it all worked out, then there's kind of no point, you know. Um, that's why a little bit of either either complexity in the sense of complex game mechanics or massive amounts of content is what is required for me to because that generates complexity, doesn't? It? If you've got huge amounts of things all interacting,
3: yeah. Um, but when the developer handcrafts a level, you can really, you know, you you, can, you get to feel it. You get to you get to feel this kind of oh, you know, you're playing against a person. If you will, yep. the the yeah, person yeah. is the designer, and you're playing against them, and you get to learn what the designer likes to do in the levels and such, and what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do, and and so on and so forth. And I find that really fun. I don't find it fun to play against a procedural system that's just looking at my characters and then you know calculating what I could potentially beat because. It's too easy to skew the calculations. Like, there's a famous exploit for Oblivion, which I learned about back at, when I was at uni, where they thought, "Oh, you know what we'll do is we'll just adjust the whole world to the level of the player, so we'll never have a problem because all the all the monsters will be secretly the same level as the player, and their their stats will adjust to to fit the the dynamic level of the player."
1: Oh, what a grind!
3: And uh, <laughs> man, so what what did what did innovatively minded players do? they just never leveled up. <laughs> Their equipment got better and better and better. They got more skills as they went along, but they never leveled up. So every critter in the game stayed at level one, including the end bosses and such. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you. it's so obvious to us now that that was the answer, but it, that's it. Every, every procedural system has got some kind of flaw in it like that where, you, you you know, not as abusive as that that was you know that was fantastically abusable but you know the developers yeah. after were like oh we didn't think of that i'm like how could you not think of that if leveling up doesn't give you a benefit ie the benefit of becoming stronger then why would players do that why would they level up if it only harms them absolutely so they so they yeah. just didn't level up they just uh, they never went to sleep and they never spent their uh, <laughs> they never spent their points and so they never leveled up And it trivialized the game, completely trivialized the game. Yeah. And I I just, I hate it. It's lazy, basically. I like a world that feels like a world, right? So when you go somewhere that you're not supposed to be and the level thousand monsters beat you into bean paste and serve you as mochi, like I like that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, great. I'll go somewhere else now where I'm supposed to be and fight things of my level, but it feels like a world, right? you know not like a uh, like a
1: theme tailored park. game experience yes <laughs> yeah. right right exactly it's not like west world where you know it's kind of it's reading who you are and trying to tailor some experience to you this is a related topic and I, i'm interested in your opinion on it i've got a bit of a bugbear when it comes to single player games and that's balance like i, I think games need to be balanced enough so that they're not completely broken but i think with single player games over balance, you know as if you were kind of approaching a multiplayer game like StarCraft or, you know, maybe uh, Competitive Civilization or something. I I really think that that can be the the death of a lot of really good... especially procedurally generated games i think procedurally generated content really leans into being a bit unbalanced and i've found that a lot of the games that i keep coming back to uh, games like conquest of elysium quite often will procedurally generate stuff that's just not balanced at all and some games can be as a result winnable some can be very very hard to win but i l- i like that in games i'm interested to know your opinion on the on this kind of like multiplayer style balance that's sort of creeping into strategy game design in single player
3: yeah, it's it's an interesting one isn't it because uh so right let's get let's get the first thing out of the way balance as in power balance because there's two kinds of balance but we'll talk we'll talk about the one that everyone's familiar with which is balancing the power of things is absolutely critical for a multiplayer game multiplayer games have to have good power balance or they're not fun right so like starcraft for example has really really good balance amongst the races every race can win you know it really depends more on the player's skill than anything else, and that's that's absolutely key for a multiplayer game and for a single player game, I do have an issue with it, and I do agree with you in that it is there's no like novelty excitement if you know that a game is super balanced like and I'll give you an example if you just killed a boss and you're gonna open the treasure chest and then you know there could be an amazing item inside or there could be some garbage in there, right but if the game is horrendously like overbalanced then you know that the item is going to be you know decent but then every item is going to be decent and every chest you open is going to be decent and every boss is going to drop something decent and then the excitement goes away right there has to be some uh the guy the designer of world of tanks spoke about this and he said that the reason why in, in world of tanks there are tiers and they said that you know they put people in top tier like when you play a match. It's usually got three tiers of tanks. That the, so some people might have level five tanks, some might have level four, and some might have level three, for example. And some days you're the guy that's level five and everyone's below you. And some days you're the guy that's level three and everyone's above you. But the reason why they do that is because they want you to have that, all, that experience of being at the bottom and really struggling to make a difference and also being at the top and having all the advantages they want that whole crescendo of the great day and the awful day because, um, this is a bit like Batman here, you know, the, the light and the darkness thing, they want as much contrast in the gameplay as possible so that the game, when you're doing well, like when you're doing really well at the bottom tier, it's really exciting. And you know, when you have a bad time at the top tier, it's really crushing. Oh, I was top tier, but I, but I messed up and got killed easily and I have thrown away my advantage and, uh, you know, it's that feeling of elation and despair can be really cool and exciting in the single player game and overbalancing it kind of can take that away from a player. So I do agree with you, it is possible to balance the fun out of a game. I have actually spoken about this before and I have played some games where it does feel a little bit like the fun got balanced out of it.
1: (laughs) How do you feel about games like the original Master of Orion, where I think they were kind of aware of the limitations of the AI to some extent, and the uh, artificial resource modifiers aren't always the most fun things for people. So they, they, delib- uh, I believe it was a deliberate design choice to make certain races stronger than others. So the humans were very, very powerful. So were the men. Uh, the Mechlar, is it sorry the uh the cylons with the research bonus but then other ones were a lot weaker and uh that the intention was that you know better players could then play with these weaker weaker races yep. and use it as a kind of challenge how, how do you feel about that as a as a design implement because i you said something about multiplayer where you think the multiplayer has to be balanced and i'm going to throw a one counter game which is dominion's where dominions the there's many races in the game many factions and some of them are absolutely way more overpowered than others and again providing the players know which ones are you know the stronger races and which are the weaker ones it it provides a natural way to provide some challenge for better players and short you know people who are just not so good at the game they can play a really really strong race Do you do you think that's a valid thing
3: yeah i mean the issue with multiplayer is if it's weak people just won't use it you know it's like you know, Age of Empires, you got like fourteen nations or whatever, and people use like sure. two, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, those yeah. are the best ones, and the rest are, are rubbish. So in multiplayer, it just doesn't asymmetrical balance doesn't work in multiplayer because uh, not not mis- you necessarily. Know, you can have asymmetrical gameplay. You can have your Protoss, sure. Zerg, and and uh, Terran be completely different factions to each other, but they have to be balanced, or people won't. You know, if one of them was really weak, people just wouldn't use it, right? And it would just be a two race yeah. game, and that's that's the problem with that in multiplayer is people very quickly work out what is good and what is not good
1: see i'd agree with that with competitive multiplayer but i think sometimes if you've got for example a community of people where because like for example in dominions again that's a really really out of all the 4x games that's the most played in multiplayer probably apart from civilization at least that i know um and it's got a big community and it's well played and it's unbalanced as all hell (laughs) and you know people occasionally make the occasional mods kind of do things you know to rebalance stuff but the vanilla game is pretty popular I, i do think that, that isn't it's is competitive as well. However, I think it kind of it certainly relies upon pre-knowledge of you know people saying, "Hey, this one's a, a good a strong faction. This one's not so strong." So when you get to competitions, you just like you know with you say that you know with Age of Empires, kind of what happens is they have this drawing lots system where people will choose which which factions to ban from that particular tournament match because they feel that it's either too, you know that it's too strong, and then you know once like once five. Fa- you know factions have been banned and they pick from the rest and so they've come up the community have come up with all sorts of weird and wonderful ways of kind of getting around this kind of crazy faction asymmetry in that game but it's still considered to be a fun and quite thriving multiplayer community game and it's certainly not like starcraft i mean i agree with you in the sense that i think if if, if you're playing like an esports or something yeah you absolutely have to have fa- faction balance in a multiplayer game i 100 percent agree because like you say everyone wants to win and all you'll get is just people just not playing that particular particular race yeah
3: this the funny thing is um and i'm aware that we're slightly running out of time here um but going back to your master of orion thing the point that you brought up there is actually playing out in real time now with master of magic in that the master of magic remake just came out recently yep and it very much is a game where you know if you pick a good wizard and good spell books and so on you can make the game very 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 easy for yourself but conversely, yep. <laughs> you can pick a really bad wizard and like horrible spell books, and uh, or no spell books at all if you really want to bring out the masochism and make the game incredibly hard for yourself. And the community's yep. reactions to what was very normal twenty years ago is is very interesting to to see. Oh, why is such and such so good? It needs to be nerfed. Why is such and such so bad? It needs to be buffed. Well, it's yep. a single player game, so if you want to play the overpowered thing you totally can and have an easy time and if you want to play the weak thing you can and have a and have a challenge but there are people that
1: for whatever reason they just can't seem to understand this as a concept they want everything to be balanced yeah i think that's come from multiplayer honestly i I do and i I think that there has been a shift towards trying to trying to balance things is you know and master of magic was made by simtex along with master of orion they it was the same developer they made them in quite close succession they would have they brought over certain game mechanics and design principles into both games. And it's funny because Master of Both Games went on to spawn endless kind of clones and variants and, you know, the kind of bastard children. And uh, the, some of those design principles actually stuck in the 4X genre. But it seems that modern games, modern 4X games try to like err towards a little bit too much balance for my liking, particularly in, you know, single player.
2: I was going to say, I have noticed that myself whenever I go back to older games when they weren't so balanced and like particularly with like the ghost recon games or ones that I saw, I I go back and play the older games and I go, holy crap, these are hard. I don't remember this being so difficult when I was a kid. There's a massive, massive difference with how they, with how you, these games that were made, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And now, and I think you guys are, have hit the nail on the head about balance and uh, like how everything is designed to be balanced now.
3: Well, the, the aspect of balance that, That no one thinks about. This is a very game design topic. Is degeneration. So something is not balanced. Also, like it could it could have a perfect power level and fit perfectly in the game, not be overpowered, but not be underpowered. But it can be degenerative. And what we mean by that is like every strategy revolves around the thing that is that has degenerative balance, right? So, for example, in the old command and conquer games, for example, everyone just built huge hordes of tanks. Now they weren't well. They weren't necessarily the best unit. They weren't necessarily the worst unit. They were just a really solid unit to make lots of. Right now, in every strategy revolves around one particular unit. It has degenerative balance, and that is what we try to target more than anything else. If if everyone is constantly thinking about a particular unit or rifle or item or whatever, either you know thinking about strategies to counter it or thinking about using it then that's a problem. And sometimes when you have lots of asymmetrical races and there's only like one that's really good, then everything revolves around either playing against that race or playing with that race. Then it's a problem, even if it otherwise sort of fits in. So yeah, this it's, it's another thing to think about.
2: Okay, so I know uh, we've talked about it as well, but in your last channel update you were saying you're running into issues playing certain games because of your hardware, like going back to your YouTube channel and you're looking at doing, like upgrading it and then covering different games. So real quick, just wanted to ask you, what do you plan on covering playing in the future? What are you looking forward to, I guess, is what I'm asking.
3: So the goods goods are in the post. They're on their way. New computer is on its way. I'm looking forward to playing Broken Arrow because it looks really good. Um, I've just recently played a classic on my channel, Ground Control which is the grandfather of these kinds of games. I love that game. (laughs) So uh, I look forward to playing that. Command APC taking friendly fire. (laughs) The sound that haunts your nightmares if you've played that game. Um, So I'm looking forward to playing that. I'm going to start Phantom Brigade very soon, very shortly. On the 17th of this month, I'll start playing that. Um, I've never played it before. I don't know anything about it. Someone sent sent it to me as a gift, so I'm going to play it. So that should be interesting. I'll just cr- my usual stick. I'll just crank the difficulty to max and plunge in. I don't think it's going to be too hard, but we'll see. So that's what I'm doing in the near future. And I also hope to expand my classroom series in the near future, just talking about fundamental strategy, a good approach to tactical situations and such that's game agnostic. So lessons and things that you can apply to any game. So you're playing a game for the first time, you you know, approaches for winning from a position of not having the information. This is kind of a multiplayer mindset as well, in that, you know, in multi, in a lot of multiplayer games, you don't know what the other guy is going to do. You have no idea. So you have to play in a standard way, in a way that is going to be able to win in a majority of circumstances. And that's kind of the thing that I want to try and teach in that classroom series. So I hope people enjoy that. I know it's a bit boring. It's just like a whiteboard and me talking a lot, but hey, I mean, it's a podcast, so it's just be- me talking
1: a lot here. So, <laughs> As a YouTuber myself, I don't get time to watch other people's Let's Plays. Even like people I collaborate with, like Daz Tactic, I don't really get a chance to watch his videos. So, uh, but I definitely, definitely watch stuff like when you're talking about theory, game theory, and things that I don't really have that much knowledge about, you know, and in the same way that reading a copy of Sun Tzu's Art of War is going to be kind of good for my gaming career. I, I kind of see it in the same kind of, as part of the same kind of diet that I should be consuming. Edmund, can you tell us about YouTube channel? Where, where do we find you?
3: Yeah, it's youtube.com forward slash the Edmund. I actually made I actually made the uh, channel. Well, I made an account to be more accurate when YouTube first founded, and back then they they gave links. So it's just literally youtube.com forward slash the Edmund. I actually have a link, <laughs> which I've never changed. Uh, so no that's worries. How you can find me, or you can just type the Edmund into YouTube. Uh, if you get a load of stuff about Edmonton, it's because it's because the algorithm has decided that you want to know about Edmonton and that you have misspelt <laughs> Edmonton. If you get a million videos about Edmonton, just put like Edmund Gaming or Edmund Battletech or Edmund Terror and Victor, just literally anything that that tells the algorithm, oh, you actually don't want to talk about Edmonton, the town.
1: (laughs) okay guys uh we've got five minutes left so we better wrap up um edwin this has been great it's been wonderful to have you on you're welcome back anytime to come back and chat to us about games and games design and all that kind of good stuff uh so thank you very much for your company today
3: yeah i oh, know thank you for inviting me and uh i'm just a po- I, i'm sorry that i'm not up to my usual standards of enthusiasm and clarity here but uh i just got back from wasd which is a, a major games convention and unfortunately i seem to have picked up somebody's chest infection from somewhere so i'm still i'm still battling this chest infection right now
1: you don't find me i've I've done my best
3: to mute my coughs so maybe you noticed a couple but uh i'm i'm always happy to talk to anybody and if you look at my channel i actually reply to pretty much every comment that i get i i you know if people take the time to write to me then i want to write back to them but yeah uh one thing that you did bring up which i which i kind of uh glossed over or avoided answering was um i did say that i don't like talking about games design with people normally and that is because a lot of people have this uh, opinion that if you're not good at a game then your opinion is not valuable and i'm not i'm not putting myself in that position particularly because i'm pretty decent at most games but there's a lot of, especially when you talk about multiplayer balance and stuff like that, a lot of arguments come from a position of, well, I'm really good at the game, so therefore I am correct. And you're not as good as I am, so therefore you're you're wrong. And I really, I hate this kind of argument. I just find it unbelievably toxic and tedious. Sure. Uh, you know, you don't have to be good at a game to understand fundamental problems that it may or may not have, right? And it's funny that, in paying attention to people who perhaps are not good at the game, but they give certain feedback, you do find certain exploits or problems or uh, or, or strategies that that are problematic, but not necessarily things that that, that matter at the uh, the highest level. If you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but it does matter because. I know this is really naive of me, but I just want people to enjoy games. <laughs> I really like games and I just want people to yeah. get into games. I want them to play games. I want them to have fun. And that's I, a very
1: admirable way to uh, approach it. I, I
3: don't, I don't agree with this attitude that, Oh, the design is, you know, if the design is fine at the top level, then the design is fine. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's exclusionary is the word I want to use. And I hate, and I hate that. I hate excluding people. If people want to, play they should they should be able to have fun at whatever level they're at and i just hate the attitude that sometimes comes from very competitive players from the top down like oh i'm a really good player competitively so i understand the game but they may not actually understand you know what's going on in the background actually but what as soon as you get into that kind of argument it's just a complete nightmare so
1: yeah. I've, I've, I can remember some recent examples. Guys, we're going to have to wrap up. Edmund, thank you very much. And thanks for joining us, Sean.
2: Anytime. No, anytime, man. It's always good. to uh, I'm getting over something as well. But yeah, no, great to have you, Edmund. Uh, it's been really great talking to you.
1: Okay. So this was Ben, Sean, and Edmund for Explorminate. I will catch you next time. Keep exploring, guys.